Welcome to the Frontline Herbalism Podcast with your host Nicole Rose from the Solidarity Apothecary. This is your place for all things plants and liberation. Let's get started. Hello strangers. Um, I'm so sorry that the podcast came to like an abrupt halt. Um, Fortunately I hadn't really done an official launch. My plan was to get six episodes recorded and then do a big launch and that way people can kind of like work through the back catalogue which is like the advice I'd been given. Um, But as fate would have it um, something pretty full-on happened in my life which meant that I had to stop recording. Um, And yeah my kind of whole world came to a halt and some of you that follow me on Instagram may have seen the news already Obviously, close friends will know, and I've shared the news on my email list. Um, But for those of you who don't know me at all, um, I'm going to be sharing a little bit about um, what happened. And yeah, I'm probably going to be recording this uh, podcast like 10 times um, just so I can get my words out and feel clear and grounded in this kind of horror story. But I just wanted to share that, yeah, there's like a very strong kind of content warning with this, with this episode. Um, It's very intimate and personal about my friend Taylor who died. I'm going to be graphically talking about suicide, abuse in prison, transphobia, um, class, yeah, just kind of general state violence. Um, So yeah, I just want to kind of pause things there and give you the opportunity to to skip um, and just download the next episode which is going to be about um, dandelion and yeah there's not there's not kind of much herbal content if that makes sense this is just like a personal episode about um, a friend that I've lost and I feel like it's relevant to share because I kind of want to explain where I've been and I also want to honor him I want people to know his story and yeah, I feel like part of the Frontline Herbalism podcast is talking about kind of, um, it's talking about herbalism, but it's also talking about frontline struggles, including abolitionist movements to free people from prison, to build a world without prisons. And so, yeah, this this kind of feels important and relevant. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause it there. And then um, after the little um, kind of music bit, I'm going to start reading a statement which I'll explain more about um, in a second. Okay, thanks for listening. Okay, so I already gave a content warning. um, And yeah, I'm probably going to be pausing and editing this and trying not to wobble out. um, But I am sharing the details of my close friend who died. Um, He was called Taylor. Um, I met him back in, I don't even know, 2009, 2010 maybe, um, in prison. And he was the partner of my best friend, Sam, who some of you would have heard me talk about before on Instagram and various places. And yeah, we, we kind of, um, yeah, just hit it off really because of his partnership with Sam and I was like some sort of weird relationship counsellor between them and yeah, then they, I got out and they got separated 
into different prisons and kind of kept apart intentionally by the prison system. And Sam asked if I would visit Taylor because she was worried about him. And then, yeah, I started visiting Taylor and me and Taylor began to have like more of an autonomous kind of friendship. Yeah, where I would see him like every few weeks and write to him and send him emails once Email a Prisoner was launched. And um, yeah, it was just a long decade of friendship and love and trying really hard to get him out of prison. Um, I'll explain more about that in a minute when I read the statement. But yeah, he... He killed himself um, inside in July and that's why I haven't been podcasting or really doing anything at all. Um, and yeah, I loved him so much. We had a beautiful funeral. He was cremated. I went with a friend and some of his family members to spread his ashes where he wanted them, including in the beautiful sea. Um literally like swam swam out in the sea to to um let his ashes go and um after his death like was full of rage and pain I mean I still am but um me and a close friend and some other comrades who kind of read it and helped us with it wrote a statement about what happened to share a bit more information to kind of talk about the political context and his life and yeah to ask for solidarity and support in mourning him so I'm gonna read that statement now I'll put the link in the show notes but if you want to read it it's at bristolabc.org forward slash rip taylor um, I'm gonna pause this now and wipe my eyes and then I'm gonna finally read this statement Okay, here we go. And yeah, I also just want to share that um, some comrades have translated the statement into um, into Spanish or Castellano and Gallego and German and Russian and the links to those translations are also on the webpage. <sighs> okay, the statement. Taylor is dead. He was pronounced dead in prison at 10.33pm on Saturday the 9th of, Ju- of July after cutting his neck. He was meant to be on suicide watch, but the prison failed him. We were informed by the prison governor at 3.30am on Sunday. His cell has been sealed by police and we await news of the autopsy. We will announce news of his funeral in the coming days and weeks. His story is one of abuse, injustice, transphobia and tragedy. It didn't have to be this way. He was murdered by the state. His death should trigger resistance and rebellion inside and outside of prisons everywhere. We have no investment in his inquest or that the state can deliver any kind of justice. This is a call to arms to abolitionists and anarchists all over the world. With rage in our veins and love in our hearts until every prison turns to ash. Taylor, you were our best guy. Our queer family will forever miss you. You will never be forgotten and the state will never be forgiven. Fuck, okay. (laughs) I need to like pause again and then I will re-record this. Who is Taylor? Taylor was a trans prisoner trapped in the UK prison system for over 14 years. He was an IPP prisoner who had served 10 years longer in prison than his original sentence. He was a beloved friend to anarchist comrades who met him in prison. He had a cap on his knuckles and an anti-authoritarian spirit and a deep love for animals. He was a working class old school prisoner who knew which side he was on. He hated the system with every ounce of his being. Taylor was one of the first members of the IWW, 
um, the Industrial Workers of the World Union, via the Incarcerated Workers Organising Committee, or IWOC, that was founded in England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland in 2015. He was also active with Smash IPP, contributing to the newsletter and encouraging other IPP prisoners to join the group. IPP Death Sentence IPP, or Imprisonment for Public Protection, is a type of sentencing that was introduced in 2005 and meant that people would be sentenced to an initial tariff, that's like minimum time that must be served, and after that their release would be decided by the parole board. This means that IPP prisoners have no definite release date. It is effectively a life sentence for minor crimes. After huge public pressure, IPP sentences were abolished in 2012, but not retrospectively, which means there are still more than 3,500 people in prison with no release date. The uncertainty is a living hell. This sentence led to the UK having one of the highest rates of prisoner suicide in the world. At least 243 of the UK's IPP prisoners have died in prison. 72 of them took their own lives. For Taylor, the IPP was a death sentence. He was given four years for burglary but served 14 years before he died. The long-term imprisonment with no end date totally destroyed Taylor's mental health. He attempted suicide multiple times, including slitting his own throat and taking an overdose that led to him being in a coma twice. It eventually killed him. No end date. The IPP works by a prisoner first serving an initial tariff, after which they have a parole board hearing. The parole board decides whether to free that prisoner or to recommend them for open, category D conditions, psychiatric imprisonment or a rehab, for example. They can also decide if a prisoner must stay in prison for longer and recommend certain things, like courses for the prisoner to complete. The outside probation service and offender managers within the prison create reports and make recommendations and prisoners are also often subject to various risk assessments or psychological reports. At each board hearing, new hoops can be created that the prisoner will need to jump through. For example, a prisoner might do everything the parole board directs, and then two years later at the next hearing, the parole board might say, you still need to address X behaviour and therefore do X course. This leads to a continual process of imprisonment where goalposts are repeatedly moved. The uncertainty, frustration and lack of power leads to prisoner behaviour deteriorating, whether that is increased drug use, self-harm or kicking off in protest. This behaviour then becomes a justification for their continuing imprisonment because that person is not safe, quote-unquote, for the community or has not addressed their offending behaviour. The cycle continues. We have 14 years of catalogued evidence of impossible parole hearings and prison failings. Taylor's suicidality was the reason he was kept in prison, yet his suicidality was caused by prison. There is only so much one human can take. Death became the only option for Taylor as all legal doors to freedom closed again and again. Transphobia, pathologised, hospitalised and imprisoned. Taylor gave his consent in 2018 to share more about his life story to help raise awareness of trans prisoners and what happens when the medical system pathologises trans people. Growing up, Taylor was subject to years of physical, sexual and psychological abuse from his mother and stepfather. He managed to escape and be adopted by his grandparents as an early teenager. However, he would often return to visit his family, desperate for love and validation, but was met with neither. This intense pattern of trauma has followed him forever. Unfortunately, during his sentence, both his adopted parents died and as a result, he lost his main support network. The grief was insurmountable and was unable to heal due to being locked in a cell and unable to visit their graves or process his grief fully. We know he is with them now. 
Taylor always knew he was a man. He went to a local doctor as a young teenager and expressed his feelings and issues with his assigned gender. The doctor pathologised Taylor as unstable and denied any access to hormones or any surgery. This was over 30 years ago and access to hormones online or other support groups was nigh on impossible. Before prison, Taylor had never met another trans person. The combination of childhood abuse and gender dysphoria led to drug and alcohol abuse, as well as a long-term pattern of self-harm. Taylor became an addict, and as a working-class person with no financial means, crime was the only option to sustain his habit. This led Taylor to a very self-destructive life, including many abusive relationships and actions that he deeply regretted. Taylor accessed many mental health services, however none of them affirmed Taylor's gender identity or needs and he was repeatedly pathologised, hospitalised and imprisoned. In the judge's summing up of his case whereby he was given an IPP sentence, he recognised it was Taylor's gender issues that led to his imprisonment. Taylor experienced transphobic abuse in prison from officers and other prisoners. Once he was attacked by a girl on his wing in a courtyard, thankfully our Taylor was a fighter and defended himself. He spat back on her and said, here's some of my gender fluid. Oh, he was such a fucking legend. <sighs> okay. Officers throughout his sentence would target him with insults, dead naming and repeatedly and repeated misgendering. In HMP Eastwood Park, Officer Lord deadnate him repeatedly in order to wind him up and try to provoke him into acting out and therefore sabotaging his parole. When admitted to a psychiatric hospital after a spate of suicide attempts, Taylor was assigned a psychiatrist. During sessions, Taylor was repeatedly dehumanised and encouraged to see himself as a woman. They said that relationships were a core part of his offending behaviour and discouraged him from being with women or in relationships at all. During this intense time of vulnerability, Taylor believed the only way to ever be released from prison was to pretend to be a woman and to not have romantic relationships with women. Fortunately, once he had left the hospital and stopped having sessions, he realised what a horrific transphobic act of institutional violence this was one that trans people worldwide have experienced, pathologised by psychiatric authorities. Taylor was blown away by letters and cards he received from the trans community. Despite the prison's best efforts to stop him obtaining a binder, including claiming they didn't recognise if the binders were sent in for the top or the bottom and refusing to issue them, he eventually experienced the euphoria of making his chest align more closely with his gender. He would speak with excitement about getting top surgery when he was out and running half-naked on the beach and swimming in the sea. Now he will never have the chance. Homophobia in prison. Relationships were constantly considered a risk factor for Taylor and his attraction to women was ongoingly pathologised and criminalised in prison. Over the 14 years he was behind bars, he had separated from many people he had loved, including one long-term relationship that lasted over six years, whereby he was violently separated from them and the prison service intentionally kept them apart, never allowing them to meet until recent years. In prison, physical relationships are met with punishment. You can be given an IEP, enough of which lead you to basic or full segregation. This happened many times throughout Taylor's sentence. The constant policing by officers and the separation between him and people he cared about also contributed to destroying Taylor's will to live. Should Taylor have obtained parole at his next hearing, one condition was that he refrained from all romantic and intimate relationships. His own lawyer said he would need to comply, although we all know although we all know that closeness to other humans is a deeply necessary part of survival. We often spoke with Taylor about how the state was acting like an abusive controlling partner. He felt powerless to challenge it. 
In the last week of his life, Taylor was nicked for kissing another prisoner. This was one of the trigger events that led to his death. HMP Eastwood Park Hellhole HMP Eastwood Park is a quote-unquote women's prison in Gloucestershire, not far from Bristol. Horror emerges from its walls regularly. Three prisoners have died there within the last month. One woman, Kaylee, died two days before Taylor on the same wing. People get violently attacked by officers regularly and sexual abuse is prevalent. On a recent visit with Taylor, he shared how women had been forced to give oral sex to officers in exchange for drugs being brought in from outside. Taylor was so close to freedom and HMP Eastwood Park took it all away. What triggered Taylor's latest spiral of suicide attempts was completely preventable. He had finally been getting his ruttles, released on temporary licence, whereby he could leave prison for a day with an officer as a way of working towards release and demonstrating to the parole board that he was quote-unquote safe. On the 20th of May, Taylor was in Cabot Circus in Bristol when the officer responsible for supervising him abandoned him. Taylor tried to find her, but he was unable to. He had no phone or way of finding her despite looking continuously around the city. Taylor managed to report it to the prison. Instead of taking responsibility for losing Taylor, the officer who escorted Taylor into Bristol lied and claimed he went missing for a number of hours on purpose. Taylor became angry and pushed over a plant in reception. Prison officers then attacked him. They kicked the shit into him and dragged him into a new cell with none of his belongings. We saw Taylor days after and could see bruises all over him. Taylor was awaiting surgery for a hernia and being bent up by officers was a life-threatening act of violence. An action alert was launched that 544 people sent to the prison warning them that Taylor's loved ones are seriously worried about his well-being and that this abusive treatment is only going to exacerbate his serious mental and physical health conditions after years of incarceration. This incident triggered the three suicide attempts and the final one that killed him. What if thousands had taken part in the action alert? How could we have made Eastwood Park take notice? These are the questions that will always haunt us. Class war. Everything about Taylor's life was shaped by class. We do not want this to be erased. It is not rich people who use drugs who end up in prison. It is poor people oppressed by our economic system who end up in prison, and they stay there to keep a class-stratified society in existence. Lessons for our movements. There's a quote here. The state is permanent violence. Errico Malatesta. We write our movements, but we don't always know who our are. We want to acknowledge there were a small number of amazing close friends and comrades in our networks who supported us over the years. You know who you are, with a little heart. Who were on the end of the phone after harrowing visits or who completed action alerts that we posted online. Who sent cards to Taylor and who came to noise demos. But mostly we felt alone. Taylor was alone. Comrades went through years of hell and more often than not had to beg for support. One person supported Taylor for 13 years, nine of which were almost completely alone despite her best efforts to bring up his case in groups and write about him online. Some anarchist websites would not share our action alerts or calls for support because Taylor was not a quote-unquote political prisoner, even though an understanding of class and gender oppression is a core of anarchism. Taylor's death could have been prevented if there was more support, more resistance, if our movements were a fucking threat, if prison authorities feared us and our calls to action. We need to fight like hell for the living. We need to fight like hell for those still inside. Abolition means prisoner support. Abolition became flavour of the week for a short time, yet the unsexy and unglamorous work of prisoner phone calls, visits, action alerts, relentless fundraising etc. does not attract many people. 
We were told we did this work, quote-unquote, unsustainably, yet no practical support to take the load from our shoulders was given. We refused to abandon our friends in prison. Yes, a diversity of tactics is needed, but this can't be used as an excuse not to engage with the unglamorous work where getting a transfer to a prison with marginally less white supremacist screws that reduce your loved one's chances of racist attacks takes a year and is as good as it gets. What would have helped prevent Taylor's death? People writing to Taylor and building trust with him so that he had a more expanded circle of friends. Help travelling for visits, legal advice and support for his parole paperwork. People helping with and sharing our action alerts. People offering counselling or support for the ongoing traumatic stress. Or even fucking acknowledging how much this was for us. People coming on demos where we called for support and us not being humiliated begging people to show up. People with privilege accessing their networks to help get Taylor out. Media work, legal work, etc. Giving money to his top surgery crowdfunder and for visits costs. Trans prisoner lighter writing events, helping host info nights for Smash IPP or IWOC, doing banner drops, reposting our statements and graphics. We needed everyone's rage. We needed to not feel alone. We wanted to feel solidarity in practice. We wanted people to understand that abolition means prisoner support, that this should be a huge part of the movement and that keeping our friends alive in prison is part of resistance. We need people to recognise that prisoners are not projects. They are not quote-unquote casework. They are not a fascinating object of study to write your master's dissertation about. They are not the same as organising a book fair or running a campaign. They are human beings and the stakes of fucking life or death. People need consistency. They need care and friendship. They need to be treated like fucking human beings. Taylor loved us not because we were anarchists, but because we are his fucking friends. We are his family. Because we love him with passion and kindness for who he is and not because he is a prisoner. Abolition means revolution. No more fucking reading groups. Where is your rage? Nothing can describe the feeling when you receive another phone call saying your friend has been airlifted out of prison in a helicopter because he has sliced open his own neck because he cannot take the abuse in prison anymore. The rage against the prison system moves through your veins. You want to destroy the whole world, but you turn to your comrades and where are they? Somehow it feels like even amongst prison abolitionists, the violence taking place within prisons themselves is so often ignored and prisoners are forgotten, erased, patronised and tokenised. Yes, abolition requires us to burn down the whole state, the borders, the education system, as well as, not instead of, prisons. The state disappears people so we have to work twice as hard to ensure people are not erased. Our loved ones are tortured and the response is starting reading groups about abolition writing statements for the transphobic Guardian. We would get told time after time that people don't have, quote-unquote, the capacity to do a demo right now. We cope with the silence of signal group chats when we ask for support. Where is your fucking rage? Why are we not burning these places to the fucking ground? The abolitionist movement in the UK is passive and docile. It is not angry enough. You cannot learn about abolition just from a book. Learn from prisoners. Learn from loved ones of people in prison. There are fucking thousands of us. Ask anyone their experiences and you will hear stories of neglect, abuse and violence. That is enough motivation to fight. Revolutionary abolitionists in the so-called United States would risk death to liberate people from slave plantations. They started the Underground Railroad to free their families and comrades. Where is the direct action to free our friends from cages? Where is the rage when they die inside? How do we push our movements beyond canvassing for fucking Jeremy Corbyn? 
Abolition means revolution, it means destroying the state, it means direct action, it means putting the war into class war. We know Taylor was one of millions of people around the world kept in a cage. We know thousands of people are murdered by the state in wars, like in the invasion of Ukraine. We know the state kills people on its borders, in detention centres, in prisons, in psychiatric hospitals. We know it's those harmed by white supremacy, ableism, poverty and transphobia who face the sharpest end of this violence. Every single incarcerated person is a political prisoner. The inquest and the prison and probation ombudsman report will not achieve justice, quote-unquote justice. Prisons are working exactly as they are designed to. The horror is, this horror is no accident, it is intentional. <sighs> Pools of Taylor's blood covered his cell where he died alone. His blood covered the hands of HMP and they will face no repercussions unless we make them. We call for rage everywhere. Remember Taylor. Fight with everything you have for those still in prison. No more empty slogans. This is a life and death struggle. We call on comrades to honour Taylor in every way they know how. Against prisons, against the state, for friendship, for freedom, for revolution. Whew. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to go and have a big cry again now. Um, but yeah, that was written from like a real place of like pain and rage and... Yeah, um, I also had COVID, <laughs> like, I was really sick after, um, after Taylor died, and, uh, yeah, I thought it was just this kind of, like, extreme rage response, and then I realised, like, I also had this viral infection that was giving me a fucking fever and making my heart go crazy and stuff, so, anyway, um, like I said, we had a beautiful funeral for him, the inquest has started, like, officially has opened, we're in touch with solicitors about all of that shit. But ultimately, I just want to add, like, people are still behind bars. Like, people still need support. I know I regularly put in calls to action on these podcasts, like, show notes and in the first bit of the kind of intro of the podcast. But, yeah, I just want people to learn from his death and to feel like prisoner support needs to be a priority for anarchists and for other people. And that if we're trying to build a society based on care and mutual aid and solidarity and friendship and freedom, then yeah, we need to look at the people who are in cages and we need to help get them free. Okay, thanks everyone. Um, I will be back next week. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Frontline Herbalism podcast. You can find the transcript, the links, all the resources from the show at solidarityapothecary.org forward slash podcast.